Yesterday was May 25, 2022, the second anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Around the same time, about two years ago, I talked with Representative Shelley Kloba, Democrat of the 1st District at the Washington House of Representatives. We talked about racism, white supremacy, George Floyd's murder, and her advice on how citizens can reach out to politicians. In this interview, Representative Kloba explains a few legislatures that she was able to pass in the Congress. She gets emotional when explaining one of them. We also talk about the process that takes place to pass a bill and the life of the bill after it becomes a law. She approaches some of our questions from the point of view of a mother and she tells us what she thinks and feels about racism in the United States. For disclosure, my husband contributed to Representative Klobuchar's campaign in the past. Please listen to our interview about George Floyd and the occurrence of the political procedure in the House of Representatives. For this hour, I'm talking with Representative Shelley Kloba, Washington State Legislator. Shelley started her journey to Washington State Legislation Building as a parent advocating for her daughter's public school. Inspired by her experience advocating for her local PTA, she took the journey further and eventually was elected in the State House of Representatives in 2016. Hello, Shelley. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on your Absolutely. program. It's an honor. It's an honor. Thank you so much for making yourself available in such a short notice. I truly appreciate that. So let's say I know that you have one daughter. And then your daughter comes to you and say, hey, mom, what's happening with George Floyd? And what, what are this, all of these things are going around us? And what is your reaction? I want to know what is your response to, to your daughter? You know, for me personally, it really comes down to the fact that America has not lived up to its aspirational goals that we have for ourselves of freedom justice and opportunity for all. And there have been times in our history and now is one of them where it becomes um, blatantly obvious of this shortcoming that we have as a society and as a democracy, that we are not living up to our shared dream. And for a lot of people that makes it feel like a myth. Um, and, you know, I would I would just tell her, I, I really do truly believe that this is something we can strive to be. We obviously there has been progress made in history, but we need these kinds of times to stop and take a look at ourselves and take a look at our systems to figure out why are we falling short of this dream we have for ourselves? Absolutely. And, Yesterday, yeah. yesterday, it was it, the system that you are mentioning was not yesterday on Tuesday. Again, I was talking with two activists who are taking this further in the state of Washington. And one of the issues that they were raising uh, day in day, I mean, it, throughout the conversation was we need to fix the system. And you're talking about the system. So I mean, correcting a system is damn difficult thing to do. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. But that should not deter us from starting the work. 
it should not ever deter us from continuing to do whatever we can do because because each of us are part of a whole entire system and and there's pieces and parts that are going to be accessible to us and not accessible to us and and i just i saw the other day on facebook a guy who a white man who understands his privilege and his ability to just go for a jog whenever he wants to and how that very same act is very dangerous and can get you killed for other people and so he was offering to start a running group and saying you know my People who are black who would like to have a running buddy who's white to help feel you make you feel safer, I want to do that. And I thought it was the most profound example of the idea of you do what you can, where you can, when you can. And when we all put our little piece of it all in together, it can really make a difference. And so that's one of the things I talk about with my daughter, too. I mean, this is a really hard time. And, and I'm also telling her, I'm listening to you. Because her experience is, of course, different than mine. She um, graduated from college and she had exposure to different kinds of um, um, classes than I did where they talked about race and they talked about cultural competency. So I can learn from her as much or more than she can learn from me. And, and I also... Um, you know, want to help her to identify her emotions. And I know as a mom, we see this developmentally in children, I think mostly in the toddler phase. And then it comes back again through the teen years where they start to experience some really big emotions that are very strong and they just don't know how to cope with them. And when it's in the toddler phase, it's because suddenly they're physical present, they can be in places and, and put themselves into situations that are scary. And we need to help them label their emotions. It comes back around again as a teenager because suddenly, you know, they're starting to get a little bit more freedoms and their bodies are different and society looks at them differently. And we again need to come back to those conversations that we have with our children to help them identify and explore their emotions and do it. Make sure that they know that we are a safe place. For do them. you have a Do you have a story for us? A story that you, yeah, okay, go yeah, hooray. <laughs> well, in terms of um, just. Uh, I, I know we have kind of prefaced a little bit in the conversation about ways that, uh, you know, someone can come to and talk to their legislator about a problem that they're seeing. And, um, you know, perhaps it can be a, an example. Um, it's one of my favorite bills that I passed. It, I think, comes in the, the theme of this is what democracy looks like for me. And uh, a group of uh, taxi cab drivers who specialize in wheelchair accessible taxis right? They noticed that the law said that uh, if you are a senior transportation provider, you know, for senior citizens, or if you, you know, there's a variety of different um, medical transport uh, companies who can qualify for a disabled license plate and a, a hanger, uh, on the, and then they can use the disabled parking spaces. But taxi cabs who want to serve disabled customers in wheelchairs, can't access those. And so these uh, these are largely small business owners. More often than not, they were folks who were first-generation immigrants who would come and start a business, and they see this problem. And they're not big, they're not powerful, they're not a part of something larger, but they brought the problem to me. And it hit my heart because my dad is disabled and uses a wheelchair. So little did they know, 
uh, that about me, but that was why I joined in the effort. And we got the ability for them to access that disability plate so that they can serve their clientele better and be safer themselves as they're loading and unloading their clients who need a wheelchair and a ramp to access transportation. And so uh, it's still... <clears throat> It still chokes me up to this day that I got to stand outside our legislative building with these, you know, first generation immigrants who came in some cases from countries where their government was nothing but corruption. Yeah. And not a dime was exchanged. It was a free meeting of people and their ideas and, um, you know, coming together with several voices and uh, getting it done. And at the end, they gave me a wonderful box of Godiva chocolates as an appreciation. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it really, it, I, I don't think that it's an experience they necessarily would have had in their own country. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have had a small part in helping these people understand that their voice matters and they can make change if they come together and connect with the people who can help make the decisions. And um. Those are my favorite kinds of experiences in the legislature. Absolutely. Yes. And so I so, think this is the power that people have. Yes. So for the sake of the story that you just uh, explained and mentioned, these taxi drivers uh, came to you and wanted you to draft a bill. Exactly. What is the process of drafting a bill? Well, uh an idea, it starts with an idea and either it can come externally or it could be something that I've studied and seen in the news or with conversations. And I sit down with the, the person who's bringing the um, opportunity or uh, with our staff members and figure out kind of, I examine for myself, like what is the problem statement that we're trying to solve? How, uh, what's the impact? How many people does this uh, you know, in fact, what's the scale or the scope of the problem? Uh, come up with a proposed solution. And then the, the staff people are very good. The lawyers can, can uh, write the actual language that translates the bill idea into uh, legal language. And then, um, then I get um, other people to sign on to the bill as co-sponsors. So my, my colleagues in the House. Uh, of representatives and uh, and then the bill will be heard in a committee and that's an opportunity for people to come and weigh in uh, while that bill is is in that process of hearing um, it's helpful to have people who email or call um, about the particular bill and help me understand what would that impact be on them are they in favor are they uh, against it, what changes would they like to see made so that they think it would work better? Um, there's a lot of people out there who are experts on things that I am not. And I really rely on uh, folks to be resources for me on that. And then after the committee, it uh, will either die there or it will move on to uh, consideration by the House if it's a House bill that generated or in the Senate where that, uh, if it started over there. And then if it passes and gets 50% um, um, plus one on the House floor, then it goes to over to the Senate and the whole process begins again, back to the committee hearing, back <laughs> to the Senate floor. And then sometimes things have changed between the two uh, houses and there's a, a process by which you uh, come to concurrence we made this change, you made that change, do we agree? Yes, good, go forward. What Sometimes makes they it, die at that point too. Yeah. <laughs> what makes a bill 
become stronger uh, both in the Senate and in the House of uh, the, the I, I remember, I just do not want to mess up. So it's not the Congress, it's the Senate and the House of Representatives. No, it's the yes, yes, Washington yes. State House of Representatives. You got it. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so how does it get strengthened? By the input that people uh, contribute. And so sometimes that'll be from folks in the industry uh, who might help you understand, well, you know, I know what your goal is, but in order to do that, you'd have to do it you know, pathway A rather than pathway B. Um, sometimes that's like, for instance, we have had some conversations about bills related to consumer data privacy. They haven't made it off of the, um, uh, into law yet, but I have seen both years that the bill came forward that it was becoming more and more strong because consumer voices came into the mix. Whereas in the very beginning, it was only the companies that we were hearing from about the bill. And for, in my mind, if it's consumer data privacy and it's the data that belongs to you and me, then I think those are um, really strong voices to have. And so I, I think of that as like a, a 360 degree view of how will this work and who does it uh, impact? So, so that's, I think, the first way that you make a bill strong is, is lots of voices and lots of input. And then the second way, and this is a part that we can never forget, after a bill goes into law, at some point in time in the future, you have to ask yourself that, what I call the Dr. Phil question, how's that working for you? And so you may need to adjust. You may find that it was overkill. You may find that uh, it, it moved the issue in the right direction, but it wasn't enough. And so just that constant um, review effort of how are we doing? Have we solved the problem? What else do we need to be doing differently? What kind of bill you think that we can draft about George Floyd's um, killing and incident? What kind of bill we are looking at if we write a kind of bill that we want to pass in both Senate and Congress? I think it would involve making sure that you have all the stakeholders at the table. And that is just a fancy word for people who have an interest. And so bringing to the table the folks who are the most impacted. And so that's going to be on both sides. That will be the folks who are being oppressed, whose rights are being trampled on, who... Um, uh, are, are getting bearing the brunt of this, and mm -hmm. it so would basically, also uh, be black black people, yeah, mm -hmm. black 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 activists, absolutely, yes, yes. one, and then one. probably law the police department, yeah. yeah. You have to get law enforcement at the table. And even the broader issue, too, I think, involves how people are dealt with within the court system itself, too. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the whole legal system, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, um, all of that has to be um, at the table. So we're getting the input and you can um, you can get a lot done if you can focus on the goal and sometimes leave behind um, the reason someone wants to get to that goal. And, and so I call that being motivation agnostic. You know, you might want something to happen because of your particular perspective on why you think it needs to happen. I might want it to happen for an entirely different reason. Mm -hmm. But if, I'm, if we're still both focused on that same goal, we should work together. Forget about why. 
mm-hmm. we should be able to work so together. for the for a bill i know that uh, you, you, your your focus is on not exactly on police department or law enforcement is on different uh, different committees but for the sake of example the goal that we're looking at to write this bill what kind what kind of goal or what what kind of issues that we include in this bill mm-hmm. that you think might be something meaningful I think one of the things would have to be some uh, addressing of the idea of de-escalation. What, mm-hmm. what is there currently law enforcement officers are trained in de-escalation, but does there need to be more? Does it need to be different? Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's one area. Another area could be, it, it's a little bit broad, but accountability. Mm-hmm. When something bad does happen, then how do we hold people accountable? How do we do restorative justice that makes sure that the person who you know was in the wrong understands why and makes amends and changes their behavior for future? And um, you know, there. So, so any kind of accountability, I think, is an important piece. And, and I mean, those are kind of broader generalizations, but. Um, I think that those are important places that we should probably start. Is it really intimidating to reach the public officials? Well, you know, it's my view has changed a little bit because I just feel like I'm just, I'm a mom. I'm a, a normal person. But I do remember that when I first started getting uh, involved in politics, when I, I think of it as being like an armchair uh, advocate for my daughter, uh, I started to learn that it wasn't just, you know, issues it, it maybe in my daughter's school, but but it was broader than that. And so um, I do remember the first time I went to meet with uh, an elected official and it was nerve wracking. And I remember uh, why it was nerve wracking. <laughs> I think because I any of us, I think it's a human nature. We discount our own uh, the value of our knowledge and experience. And uh, so it feels like, well, I don't know anything and I'm going up and this person must be an expert. Well, let me, here's a little secret. We're not experts. We might be experts in certain areas, or I think myself, I'm a little more of a generalist. I could talk to you for 10 minutes about anything, but you know, my, I'm an inch wide or an inch high and a mile wide in my knowledge. And so I rely on people coming to me who have experience. And what I eventually started telling uh, advocates that I was working with, with uh, parent teacher association was you are the expert when it comes to how public policy affects your child and your school and your community and legislators need to hear from you. And so I, I continue to try to do that. Um, so, so I, I do understand that it can feel um, a little intimidating. I hope that through a variety of channels, you know, you can email us, you can um, uh, phone our offices. This is the interim period between sessions. And this is a time when we are typically in our communities, reaching out, listening, um, looking for bill ideas, working with those stakeholder groups to try to shape our bills so that they're ready to go uh, in December. And when the session starts again in January, we can, you know, hit the ground running. What kind of people who really reach out to you? You know, unfortunately, it is oftentimes people who are a little more connected and a little more politically savvy. Um, 
But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I get probably five emails a week these days about people trying to access their unemployment insurance benefits. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of across the board. I imagine that some of these folks have never reached out before. Um, and, and so that is a problem that I think we don't necessarily um, hear from everyone we need to hear from. And oftentimes when it is a, a societal problem, um, you know, we, we want to try to make sure that we get health care to everyone. The people who are uh, like suffering the most and uh, who have the most pressure in their lives because they don't have appropriate health care, they're overwhelmed by that. They're never going to be the person who reaches out to us. And so I rely on like organizations who represent people who I know are, are going to have a difficulty and barriers for whatever reason to reach out. And then I also try, and I know my colleagues do this too, that we'll also, also try to be listening in the community in places like, like on social media and um, uh, ways that we can hear conversations from people who wouldn't think to come to talk to us directly, but, and maybe don't even know how much we can be helpful. So, I, you know, it's, it, it, I remember when I was on Kirkland City Council and we first approved um, the sale uh, or a business license for a cannabis retail store in our community. And, and our community had voted like 65% in favor of having this. But then when it came to their neighborhood, it was a different thing. And so um, I made sure that we not only listened to the people who came to the city council meeting and wrote us, called us, emailed us, but I also recognized that there are people because of stigma around cannabis use, there are people who will never reach out to me publicly. And so I tried to find ways to listen in on conversations in other groups or read other things so that I could have an understanding of not only the people who talk to me, but the people who can't or won't. Many people think that uh, there is no use of reaching out to the public officials because they are, they don't listen, they do not um, take action on what they really, what uh, the individuals want them to do. And this one side of the coin and the other side of the coin is uh, many people are just dropping off uh, seeking uh, for politics because, uh, yeah. Yeah. They think that it's just boring or it doesn't get them anywhere and so forth and so on. So at one point, stigma probably or this uh, this um, experience that I'm not going to go anywhere if I go to the public uh, public officials. And on the other side, uh, the public people are not approaching politics. So how do, how do you see this these two two sides sides of the coin? Yeah, I. I think that in, in a large part, myself and my colleagues are responsible for some of that. And it's, I can understand the perception that, well, you know, I, I sent them an email and I never got a response. Sometimes, depending on when it is you're sending it, when, when we're in the middle of session and we're doing, you know, 18 hour days, we might just not have the time. Now, our legislative assistants read our emails and report to us and let us know, you know, this is how many we got on this, or uh, this is what people are saying. Um, so your input does make it through, but it won't feel like that to you if you uh, wrote me an individual letter necessarily. And it might take me, I'm still working on replying to emails that I got during the session. So uh, some of that is, I will take on that my own uh, responsibility 
to, to understand that that feels to people that they haven't gotten through. You know, I, I do read my email and I, uh, I do try to respond. The other part too, is that, you know, I have 140,000 people in my legislative district here in, in the first legislative district, and they are interested in an awful lot of things and they have divergent opinions on an awful lot of things. And just from a cognitive workload and a just 24 hours in a day, by the nature of that, I have to focus on sometimes particular areas. So a person might get kind of a, a short response or something that's not terribly inspiring from me about issue X, but it it's only because I simply don't have the bandwidth. And so um, I, I can understand how that feels disappointing too, but I I have told people more often than than not, when you reach out to me, it puts a thought in my head and a feeling in my heart that I don't know necessarily when that seed will bloom, but sometimes under the right conditions, it will. And I, I had a constituent one time tell me, I asked her a broad question about, you know, what is it you need me to understand about you and your priorities in order to represent you well in Olympia? Nice, big, broad, uh, open-ended question. And she said, well, you know, I don't really know much about politics or what you do down there, but um, I, you have to know drug court saved my life. And I said, well, tell me more about that. I don't know anything about drug court, but this sounds really interesting. And she told me the story of how she had struggled with alcoholism her whole life. And then finally, the accountability and the treatment that combination with this diversion court that if she could, uh, you know, get sober, stay sober, uh, pay off her the debts to the people she had uh, harmed through her nonviolent crime, she could stay out of jail and it would get removed from her record and she could move forward. And that is what was the thing that finally did it for her, the treatment plus the accountability. And she said, I rebuilt my life with my family and she had reconnected and it was wonderful. And she said, I just need you to know that that was a life-saving program for me. And, and I said, I don't know what I will do with that information right now, but I am so glad you told me. And then uh, that was my first session and I got down there and there was a bill that, um, because I knew her story, um, when someone approached me with the idea to broaden what we fund for those uh, treatment courts into some other recovery support services, I thought, oh, yes, I know that would work. And I know that it would be a good investment. And so, you know, later on, I was able to pass a bill that did that very thing. And it was only, I only had that interest because that woman had brought that up to me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So just talk to public officials. Yes. Okay. And, and maybe give us a little grace if we don't get back to you right away. Be persistent, but kind. And <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and, you know, it, uh, you get a lot further with uh, honey than vinegar. <laughs> you catch a lot more flies. <laughs> and so, you know, if you can try to make sure that uh, when you reach out, you're very civil and uh, set the tone for mutual respect. Um, it often is a much more helpful and productive conversation. Excellent. Save it, Michelle. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. In this hour, I'm talking with Shelly Kloba, a representative for Washington State. Shelly, what is your biggest shortcoming? Oh, <laughs> I think it's, um, I am by nature a procrastinator. 
And every once in a while, and it's on a, on a random reward uh, cycle, um, I get rewarded for being late. And so <laughs> inadvertently. You get, re you get rewarded for being late? <laughs> like I'll show up to a meeting late and all of a sudden, oh, the they're still, you know, figuring out their technology on the Zoom. I'm like, yay, <laughs> I missed that first five minutes and it worked out for me because I didn't have to sit through all of that because they're just getting started now. And uh -huh. so... You know, you're married to someone who understands a, a, a intermittent reward cycle and how powerful that is as a motivator. So yes. sad to say it's for me. Excellent, excellent. At the end of the program, I ask my guests to close the program with something meaningful about peace, about compassion and kindness. And I wanted to hear uh, your statements, whether you would like to share a prayer statement or something that you think we can take away from this conversation about peace and being peaceful and kind and compassionate. Well, I... Um... I don't know that my mother specifically said this, but this feels like a thing that a mother would say, and so I'm adopting it, and that is that um, it costs you nothing to be kind. And um, it's interesting, and I noticed this through all the volunteer work that I did too, that whenever you extend something of yourself into someone else, that obviously they uh, reap the benefit of that, but you do too. And um, kindness comes back to you. And so um, I think it's, it, it costs you nothing and it's an investment that really makes a difference. And so I would really wanna encourage, you know, everyone to be able to do that in their own lives. Absolutely, very good. Thank you so much, Shelley, for uh, being uh, my guest in the program and answering my questions. So how people can find you? So, well, I want to say thank you so much for having this conversation, having this space to um, really dig deep and, and have these discussions. And um, as a really a person who's always been an advocate, um, anytime I can encourage other people to do so, I, uh, I really like that. Um, so any legislator you can reach by using the same formula. It's first name, period, last name, at leg.wa. .gov. So for me, it's um, Shelly dot, and that's with an E-Y, uh, Shelly dot Cloba at leg.wa.gov. And I'm just going to. Um... And then no procrastination and you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you read the emails and you get back to people. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Thank you so much for being my guest. I appreciate it. So nice to see you again, Sharon. Thank, Thank you. you.